When this church first started in, in 2017, I began preaching through Genesis, after which we began Exodus, and we went all the way up to Exodus chapter 20, at which point the Israelites are camped out at Sinai, and God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, as well as the rest of the Old Covenant, which comes to Israel as a package. And we stopped going straight through Exodus chapter by chapter. We didn't go 21, 22, 23, and so forth. But rather, we stopped and we, we have been camped out at Sinai, as it were. Camped out at Sinai with the Israelites for some time now, looking at the Old Covenant. What is it? What sort of laws are contained within the Old Covenant, which pertained to the Old Covenant people alone? Which laws are applicable more broadly? What is the tabernacle? What does all the furniture of the tabernacle represent? What do all the ceremonies prefigure and represent? What is the role and function of priests and so forth? We've been dealing with subjects like this, topics like this, systematically for a while now. Almost two years, according to our, uh, our sermon archive on the church website. I looked it up today, and the first one I did in this series was January 2021. And most recently, we've been studying political theology as a subset of that broader study. As we consider the Old Covenant, what is the relevance of the way that the Old Covenant nation of Israel was governed to the governance of modern nation-states? In what ways might there be similarities? In what ways are there dissimilarities? That sort of stuff. And I've basically been teaching you what theolog theologians have called two kingdoms political theology. Or I might say tonight 2K for abbreviation. Two kingdoms political theology. And tonight I'm just going to preach a summarizing and concluding message on this little sub-series of political theology. And, and this actually is also going to be our last one in this systematic study of the Old Covenant. And then we're going to pick up with the narrative of the uh, Old, Te Old Testament history. And we're going to leave Sinai and follow Israel, God willing, through the wilderness and eventually, after some time, into the Promised Land, into the era of the judges and the kings and, and so forth. That's kind of what we will now endeavor by God's grace to do. So this is the last message in our systematic study of both political theology and the Old Covenant more broadly. I trust it's been profitable to you. It has helped me personally so much over the last couple of years to stop here at Sinai and do all of this. But of course we can't stay here forever so we will just move on after tonight. Anyway, with all that said, let me begin with a, a review and summary of Two Kingdoms, or 2K, political theology. Over the last couple of months, we've been getting into this in, in a lot more detail, so I think most of you who are here in the room have heard most of these sermons, but if there's anyone watching online who finds that this summary isn't sufficient for your curiosity or your objections, I would just encourage you to go back and listen to previous sermons, and you'll find these things more fully substantiated. However, I thought a summary would be helpful in, in leaving a simple and concise summary it fresh in our minds as we move on, but also that it would be helpful to summarize 
tonight in order to refresh our memories as we consider tonight some unresolved questions and applications pertaining to Two Kingdoms political theology. So here goes. Two Kingdoms political theology teaches that there is a kingdom of Christ. Of course, all Christians agree that Christ has a kingdom. But Two Kingdoms political theology also teaches that there is a common kingdom in which both believers and unbelievers live and operate in the here and now. And this common kingdom is not illegitimate. Or to escape the double negative, this common kingdom is legitimate. But I phrase it this way, this common kingdom is not illegitimate as if there really should be only one kingdom, but because of mankind's rebellion, there is two. No, that's not, that's not the way that it's framed. This common kingdom is not illegitimate, as if it's automatically evil and sinful by virtue of being comprised of, and most often governed by, an unbelieving majority. Again, that's not the way that the scripture presents it to us. Rather, the The way that the scripture presents it to us, the portrait that the scripture paints of this kingdom is that it is legitimate in principle. Obviously, this doesn't mean that everything that happens or every decision that's made within the common kingdom is legitimate. But the fact that there is a common kingdom is legitimate. God gives even unbelieving nations borders and kings. And this is a gracious provision of a context for unbelievers and believers alike to live out our lives in relatively better conditions than anarchy would provide for us. Well, we wait for the return of our great king, which will happen on his sovereign timeline and not ours. Now, these two kingdoms are roughly parallel to church and state. And it is God's design that at the moment church and state exist independently of each other. After Old Covenant Israel was dissolved and before Christ returns, there is no nation on earth in which church and state ought to be intertwined. God does not want the state to interfere in church matters beyond what is required for civic good. As I mentioned last week, stuff like noise violations and parking regulations and building codes and public health issues and whatnot. This is because God has not given authority over the church to the civic rulers of society, but rather to the ecclesiastical or the church leaders. So the modern state doesn't have warrant to govern the worship of the church. Scripture doesn't give it that authority and neither does natural law. Men men can recognize from natural law that we should have freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. We're going to be accountable for the decisions that we make, but natural law teaches us that every man should be answerable ultimately to God. And so the modern state doesn't have warrant to govern the worship of the church and say which church is legitimate and which church isn't legitimate and so forth. Yet neither does the church have the authority to delegitimize the state. 
and say which state is legitimate and which state is illegitimate and so forth. Each, that is the church and state, exists by God's appointment and ought to be recognized as legitimate, independent of the other's sanction. Both because Scripture and because natural law require it. Our job as Christians is not to turn the common kingdom into a Christian utopia. But first, to acknowledge realistically, and by what the scripture reveals to us, that it is not going to be a Christian utopia. The kingdoms of this world do not become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ until the last trumpet sounds. When will the common kingdom become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. What does the Bible say? When the last trumpet sounds. So we are simply to live as good citizens of Christ's kingdom while at the same time trying to be good citizens of the common kingdom insofar as that is possible. God doesn't expect us to transform culture or other, otherwise crusade with worldly power against unbelievers and unbelieving governments and people of other religions. Rather, He expects us to live as faithful witnesses to the fact that there is another kingdom. That there is a better kingdom. That there is an everlasting kingdom. Even as we try to be good citizens of the common kingdom. Here and now insofar as possible. And as we do that, the kingdom of Christ is populated with people from every tribe and language and people and nation as we preach the gospel. As the church, we're an embassy in the business of distributing citizenship documents at the behest of our king, as it were. So as the parable goes in Matthew 13, by God's appointment, by God's appointment, the wheat and the weeds grow together until the appointed time. God mercifully allows and permits and sanctions a common kingdom for the preservation and temporal good even of unbelievers until the time that he returns and the wheat and the weeds are separated. That's a very brief flyover of 2 kingdoms or 2K political theology, trying to summarize in broad terms the last couple of months of sermons. Obviously, I haven't said everything that could be said in that brief summary, but neither have I said everything that could be said even over the last couple of months. It should be acknowledged, therefore, that even after much study, two kingdoms political theology does not directly answer every possible question. And further discussion may be necessary. For example, two men could hold 2K theology and yet differ about COVID-19 restrictions or the legalization of recreational marijuana use or the permissibility of political revolution. I'm going I'm to just briefly touch on each one of those things 
to illustrate this point that not every, not every question is just easily answered, even if we embrace the 2K model and the 2K paradigm. So, to begin with, one man holds that a ban on serving any and all food in civic organizations during a pandemic time, which indirectly bans the Lord's Supper, is perfectly legitimate. And that the church ought to comply with a lawful decree of the state. Another holds that such a ban is interfering with the substance of the church's worship. And ought not to be obeyed. My point tonight is not not to resolve that question. But simply to acknowledge that two men could each hold to two kingdoms theology as a model and as a schema of how we ought to think about the relationship between church and state, and yet they might differ on an issue like that. However, the 2K framework gives them a meaningful framework in which and through which to resolve this issue. Is it within the jurisdiction of the state to do such a thing, or is it infringing on the freedom of religion in civic society, which is endorsed both by natural law and by scripture itself? This is the main question to be answered. Or in another case, two men hold 2K theology, two kingdom theology, and yet differ about the moral rightness or wrongness of legalizing recreational marijuana use. Both may agree that it's a sin. That the prohibition of drunkenness is not, is not like, well, opium's okay, since you're not drunk, per se, but high. Like, no one, no one interprets it in such, a, in such a wooden fashion. We recognize that the, the prohibition is to be in our unaltered mindset. And so both could actually agree that it's a sin. And yet one man argues that because of the hardness of people's hearts, they will smoke marijuana anyway, recreationally, and that it would be better to regulate it in the same manner as God himself decided that it would be better to regulate divorce rather than to ban it altogether, as he did in Old Covenant Israel, according to Matthew 19. The other man argues that it will actually be a net harm to society to legalize recreational marijuana use and that regulating it rather than banning it would be a foolish course of action. So here, both these guys hold two kingdoms, political theology, and yet they have a disagreement about this issue. Again, my point is not to resolve that question, but simply to acknowledge that two men could adopt the model, the schema, the framework of two kingdoms and yet still have a disagreement about how that works out with respect to a particular issue. But still, the 2K framework provides them with a meaningful framework in which and through which to have a profitable discussion. The question to be answered between them is basically, would it be a net harm or would it be a net good? One last example is the question of political revolution. Is there ever a case in which violent revolution is permissible? A coup d'etat or an assassination or whatever method. 
on the one hand, one man holding two kingdoms political theology argues that it is the de facto, those who are in fact in authority, rather than the de jure, those who are on paper authorities, which we are instructed, uh, or which we are told in the scripture have been appointed by God. And so as Romans 13.2 says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. There is never, therefore, he claims, a legitimate case for political revolution. Another argues that a state may, in certain cases, so badly fail to conform to what a state ought to be that it delegitimizes itself as a state and may be legitimately replaced. In such a case, being a good citizen of the common kingdom would require political revolution. Again, my point is not to resolve this question, but simply to acknowledge that, that both of these men could hold to two kingdoms theology and yet disagree about an issue like this. However, the 2K framework gives them a helpful framework in which and through which to, to discuss and approach a resolution to this question. Some questions that they need to think about. By what authority would one be overthrowing a state? Does being a good citizen of the kingdom of Christ ever require it? In other words, does Jesus ever say, so to speak, go assassinate that ruler and replace him with a better ruler? In which case, okay, well, there's a legitimate authority at whose behest you are acting in political revolution. Is it ever the case that obeying Jesus necessitates political revolution? If not, at the behest of King Jesus, in whose name do we overthrow the one whom God has set over us? These questions would at least begin a helpful discussion of these things. As you can see, Two Kingdoms political theology does not provide black and white answers to every question. But this is not a weak point. The two most notable alternatives to the Two Kingdoms perspective are what's called Kyrianism and Theonomy. And neither of these systems of thought either provide black and white answers to every possible question. Proponents of each of these notable alternatives may likewise disagree with each other with respect to specific applications and specific outworkings of their system. So it's not a strike against two kingdoms political theology to recognize that it doesn't immediately answer every question in a black and white way. This phenomenon, the very fact that whether, whether we're Kyrian, whether, whether we're theonomic, whether we're two kingdoms, whatever, the very phenomenon that we would disagree with each other and still not be able to figure out exactly what we ought to do in any specific situation or, or circumstance, it reflects the reality and messiness of life here and now. 
And I think, therefore, actually undergirds the two kingdoms' perspective. Because the two kingdoms' perspective insists that we aren't going to have any golden age here on earth prior to Christ's coming. When, do the, when does the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ? When we sufficiently transform it? When we, by our efforts and by getting enough seats in Parliament or the Senate or whatever, sufficiently are able to pass enough laws that now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ? When? At the last trumpet. At the seventh trumpet. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Sometimes we make progress in pockets here and there. We've seen, we've seen the way that the mass conversion of so many in the Western world radically improved life in the Western world for a long time. But there were still a lot of problems with the West throughout that whole period. It was, it was certainly not a, a Christian utopia. Like, like, there was, like just to name like two examples off the top of my head, slavery, right? Um, like Baptists in jail. <laughs> Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it's so idealistic to think that that was any kind of utopia, any kind of Christ's kingdom manifest on earth and like heaven on earth. It wasn't that. It was, it was better than Germanic tribes warring with one another and like the Picts coming down from the north to invade and whatnot. Like it was better than that. But it was not heaven on earth. The kingdom of this world did not become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Even at the height of, say, the Puritan era, where like, good theology took ascendancy to a large extent over any other ideological system. It wasn't, still wasn't heaven on earth. Things, even then, at that high point, we're still very messed up in many ways. There's a lot of messy and complex realities that, that were not resolved and fixed and dealt with. And it's always going to be that way. Things are so messy and complex here in this fallen world that nothing short of the last trumpet and Christ's return will fix it. So sometimes we're faithful and things get worse. Sometimes we're faithful and things get better. Obviously, if you have a chance to do something good in the common kingdom, do it. And great. Excellent. If you have a chance to do something good in in, in and for Christ's kingdom, do it. Great. Obviously. It's It's not like a cynical and bleak view that nothing good can happen. Nothing good can be done. You can't do anything meaningful with your life. It's not, a, it's not a cynical view like that. It's just simply saying, the kingdom of this world will not become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ until the seventh trumpet sounds. So this world is not just waiting on us to transform it. And the reason it's not 
it, do, it doesn't reflect Christ's kingdom very well is just because we've been negligent at transforming it enough. The reason that this world is so messed up is not just because we don't yet have enough seats in Parliament or enough seats in Senate. The reason that this world is so messed up is because this is not the kingdom of Christ per se. There's overlap, right? We're dual citizens. We live in Christ's kingdom even as we live also in the common kingdom. But the common kingdom is a thing. By God's appointment, the wheat and the weeds are growing together until the day appointed for the separation of the wheat and the weeds. God gives unbelieving kings or unbelieving nations, kings and borders. And this is exactly what we see happening all around us. <clears throat> we will not so transform nor take dominion over this world in Christ's name that Christ's return becomes just icing on the cake. Ain't gonna happen. Therefore, in the words of Scripture, put no confidence in princes, as the psalmist says. But as the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ.